0: in the name of God most merciful ever merciful and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy Prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny brothers and sisters wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. so we are now at the fourth lesson in the series addressing general prophethood that we introduced uh, four lessons ago Uh, And this lesson is about to start a new topic in this series. So now that we've provided the general proof for the necessity of prophethood and revelation, and there was a bit of a back and forth to answer the questions and objections about that topic, now we're going to get into the second, perhaps one of the most important subtopics in that general heading of general prophethood, which is infallibility. So infallibility can be seen from different angles. And uh, the manner in which it's presented in this series of 10 lectures or 10 lessons is that once this uh, general proof is established for prophethood, which we already did, there is the second big topic is the infallibility. The Third one is going to be miracles. And then after that, the author is going to dedicate uh, a little bit of a discussion about the general attributes of prophets. So, from a logical and pedagogical and methodological perspective, it may have been better, I think, to combine together the attributes in one place. So now we're going to be talking about infallibility of the prophets. This is already trying starting to talk about the traits of the prophets, so we could have kept it together. I'm following that structure in the book so that if anyone wants to follow it's uh, the logic is not lost on them, um, but generally speaking, I would say the last, so if we split it into four themes, this general series of ten, so the second, this is the second theme, infallibility, and the fourth should be going together, because both have to do with the general traits of prophets and prophethood. So this topic, uh, yeah, I have it here, but generally speaking, this topic is going to be split into three lessons. So this is the first of three lessons, Uh, and then we're going to go into miracles, and then we're going to go into uh, the general traits of prophets. So in a second, we'll mention how this lesson differs from the next two. The lesson is uh, divided into three parts. The first one has to do with the main point of the lesson, is that we're trying to establish that there must be a necessity, there must be a necessary reason that allows us to say the revelation or prophethood, we're using both terms interchangeably, keep that in mind, there has to be something that allows us to say this is truthful, that this is as God revealed it. So the point of the lesson is established in the first part of the lesson, which is we need an assurance that whatever we want to rely on that we're calling revelation or we're calling prophethood, we need an assurance that this is as God revealed it, and we'll talk about that in a second. That's the first part of the lesson. The second part of the lesson is, I'd say it's more methodological, it's just to allow us to. Add a little bit of a precision to the discussion and it's a transition between part 1 and part 3 but part 3 of the lesson I consider it to be the introduction to the next lessons this is where we're going to start slightly touching on the main topic of the next lesson which is what's the nature of this infallibility we're talking about okay here we're going to establish generally speaking this idea that we can actually rely on revelation as being a truthful, valid source of knowledge and information. This is what we're establishing. But this is going to open the door to this questioning about the nature of infallibility. What is it really? What are we talking about? Because as we're going to see towards the end, as we add precision, we're going to start getting some questions that maybe this infallibility contradicts freedom of will. Is there really a merit to someone who is infallible in doing whatever they're doing, the sacrifices or the actions that they're doing, if they're infallible? If they have this divine grace and this divine guidance, then what's their merit in uh, doing whatever they do? So this opens the door. this The end of this lesson, we're going to start talking about it in the last part, but the real answers are going to come in the next lesson. Okay? So... That's why I'm saying, you know, we could add a lot about the manner in which the lesson is structured. I'm trying to stick to the manner in which it was presented. It is a standalone. It works. But the moment you dig a little bit deeper, a lot of that discussion is going to be in the next lessons. Okay? So, as we said, the this lesson is going to be a first in a series of three lessons. This one is going to be concentrating on the idea of the revelation itself as valid and we're we're going to explain that in a second because if you look at the title of the lesson it's the infallibility of prophets or prophethood the reality is that as we're going to see what we're going to try to establish is the infallibility of revelation and now for the first time i'm making the distinction between the two i haven't until now i've intentionally used both because on, sometimes when we talk about this source of knowledge, of information that we need from the divine intervention that we call revelation, sometimes we're talking about the person who's giving us that revelation and that knowledge, and sometimes we're talking about the information itself. And both are two sides, are supposed to be two sides of the same coin. But now that we're getting into the details, we have to split them apart. So in this lesson 1 the author is concentrating more on the revelation the content of what the prophet is communicating this is what we're trying to establish here we want to make sure that whatever is revealed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is actually the same as the one that the information that's reaching us okay this is what we're trying to establish here in the next lesson what we're going to try to look at is The human being who is communicating this message. So although prophethood as a general theme is one and the same, here we're gonna split them. So first we're gonna concentrate on the message, the revelation. So this lesson is more about the revelation. How do we ensure that the revelation is reaching us in the same manner, whatever is reaching us, is actually the same as what's leaving Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to, to use a very simplistic terminology. Whatever Allah is communicating is actually the same as what's reaching us. This is this lesson. Next lesson is here we're gonna say therefore prophets are infallible so we're gonna dig a little bit deeper into this notion of the infallibility and what does it mean for a human being to be infallible. Okay. So this is the structure of Lesson 1, and there, that's why there's a Lesson 2. And then Lesson 3 is we're going to go back on, the, on these more problematic issues, all the objections like we did last uh, the last lesson, and go through them and answer them, look at them one by one and answer them. So if we're saying that Prophets are infallible, then what do we say about the story of Prophet Adam salam, or Prophet Yusuf salam, or how is that compatible with infallibility and so on and so forth, okay? So this is going to be lesson three in this series. So before we go into the uh, actual content, a quick reminder of the proof for the necess- necessity of revelation. Because we're just building on it. We said Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala acts with purpose, therefore He must have created human beings with a purpose. Uh, the purpose of our creation is that we reach the end for which we were created. The purpose for which we were created, this is called, in the philosophical language, our perfection. So, the purpose of our existence is to reach our perfection. For me, as a human being, for this kind of entity that I am, which is a human being, to reach my perfection, I must act in a voluntary way towards that end. So, I need power, and I need will, and I need the ability to go there. That's one side, and we have that. And on the other side, I need the knowledge that allows me to make the right choices because they are voluntary choices. So we look at, we unpack this notion of knowledge and we see that human knowledge is limited. Human knowledge has access to certain things. We have sense perception and we have reason. But there's a lot of, a, a lot of items, a lot of elements, objects of knowledge that are not within our reach. Not within the reach of normal human reason. And we need something else that gives us an assurance that what we know about those things is actually valid. And we gave conditions for that and we said at the end of this, when we look at everything, the only source for this kind of knowledge must be God. So this kind of knowledge that comes from God, we call revelation. Or because it's through a prophet, we call prophethood. Therefore, it is necessary for a human being in order for them to reach their perfection to have access to revelation. This was the proof. So that's why we called it the proof for the necessity of revelation. If a human being does not have access to revelation there is a knowledge that they need that is missing that will not allow them to walk towards that perfection. They won't know where to go. There's a lack and we explained that so go back to the first lesson and the second lesson for that so now this is where we stopped now we're going to build on that we're going to add one more issue because we can start directly jumping into this topic is infallibility of prophethood so we should start by defining what infallibility is i'm not going to do that i'm going to flip it and say so given this argument this necessity for revelation what other problems may arise from this So the next problem, so we solved a number of problems already, the next problem, the next issue, the next question that we face now is when we look at the... assuming that we now agree with everything that was said, so we no longer have a doubt about the existence of God, about the necessity of revelation, that we have a perfection towards which we're walking, okay? So all of this is well established. What guarantees Now, I know it's necessary that there is a revelation. What guarantees that that revelation that is reaching me is actually the same thing, whatever is reaching me is the same thing as what Allah revealed initially. That's it. So the point now, that's the objection. That's the the question. If it's not an objection, let's say it's not an objection yet. We'll keep the objections to the third lesson. We'll make it more polemical. For now, it's for me. When, when I look at this proof, this proof tells me, so I'm basically digging into the proof. So I accept with you that there is a God and He has these attributes and He's created human beings. And I even agree with you that revelation is necessary. Fine. So Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala is communicating. There's a source of knowledge that is divine, that is being communicated to human beings. And on this other end, we say, and it's being received by a human being who's telling it to others. So my question is what assures me, what guarantees that whatever is being communicated from this person who's referring to himself as an apostle or a messenger or prophet, who says that whatever they're communicating is the same thing as what God communicated to them. So basically what we're looking at is a chain of transmission. I want to make sure that that chain for that information, the communication of the information is secure, that there are no gaps, that there are no issues with it. Really, it boils down to that. This is the point of this lesson. So the reason why this issue arises is that we recognized already in the previous lesson at a rational level, and here we're adding even a scriptural proof, and as I said, you're gonna notice how we're gonna start relying a little bit more on scriptural proof slowly, We already established that human reason is limited. Hence, the need for revelation. Well, we can add from the Holy Quran too, when the Holy Quran says, And Allah will not expose you to the unseen, but Allah selects from His messengers whomever He wishes. What does this mean? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, he will never allow you to see the unseen. And that's why there is revelation. You're limited. The unseen is beyond what you're capable of reaching, of accessing. So how are we supposed to know? But he selects messengers, and from those messengers, you're going to have access to some of the information. That which is relevant to you is going to be communicated to you. So, in addition to what we said, we looked at it rationally previously, and we said human beings, they have a limited knowledge because of the tools that they have, the sense perception and reason. Now we're adding this scriptural proof. Okay, why are we saying this? So, if I look at revelation, I agree with you that you have said revelation is a necessity. I have no way of knowing, of assessing. Of observing the of observing this process of revelation how do I know that whatever is being communicated is whatever is reaching me how do I know that those two are equal what allows me what assures me of this validity of the of the content of the revelation so generally speaking that's what we're trying to solve so as we said that the lesson is split into three parts so now that we understand the problem so I usually put this in a separate slide, but I try to keep them to 10. So mm-hmm. part one of the lesson, the necessity of the infallibility of the message. So here, as we said, we're looking at the chain of transmission. So concretely what it means for us, and the lesson doesn't detail, give details for this, doesn't delve into the details. So I'll just keep it at that level. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking for us, the chain of transmission is basically Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, angels, prophets, and human beings. Okay, so if we start from the bottom, from the human beings receiving this, we're not going to be here talking about what interpretation human beings do with this revelation. Okay, this would be another topic, and it's a very important and interesting topic, good for advanced lessons. But this could be part of this objection. We're not talking about that. So here we're stopping at the message that is being transmitted by the prophets. The message that is leaving Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to the point where it's transmitted by the prophets to humanity. We're not talking about what humanity is going to do with them. So we're going to look at the prophets, and then we're going to look at the angels, and then we're going to look at Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Why is this important? Because if we go back to the proof, we said that the only way for me to reach my full potential, to reach my perfection as a human being, is if I have access to this source of divine knowledge that I call revelation. Now, if suddenly this information, there's any doubt about its validity, then I can no longer rely on it. And the doubt does not necessarily mean, for instance, that the prophet or the angel is intentionally misrepresenting the information. It could be unintentional. It could be voluntary. It could be non-voluntary. Irrelevant of that. The moment there is a doubt about the validity of that chain, the moment there is any doubt about its trustworthiness, about its reliability, then the entire message is nullified. I can no longer rely on it. This is why this topic—it's a subtopic, but it's important because this could be, trigger a doubt. What if the message of Allah wa ta'ala is communicating is not the same as the one I'm receiving from the Prophet? What if there's a distortion that happens on the way? And there are ways to present this in a modern. Modern fashion nowadays with all sorts of objections, but if we go back in the history of kalam, there's all sorts of other ones where they say, for instance, that devils or jinn can interfere on this line of transmission and they can distort, okay? So we're not going into the objections here, but those are the objections that this argument is answering. And there are more modern versions of this, which is who says that a human being, when they receive a divine message, they don't distort it because they are a human being, and they are of a different nature than whatever that message is coming from. Because of that, there's going to be distortion, a forced distortion. This is more a much more modern philosophical you know, argument. Either or, whether you go back to the classic version of the argument or the more modern one, the answer is going to be the same. Okay? But we're not going to delve into those details but you'll see that the answer isn't there. If ever you encounter those issues, you'll see that the answer is implied here. So now we understand the problem and we understand its importance. So as we said, when this process of revelation is taking place, there is nothing in my capacity as a human being to observe that process, to assess its validity as a process, nor assess the validity of the content I'm getting. So if I agreed with the fact that revelation is necessary, now revelation comes to me and says, and this is how you're going to perform your prayer. And this is how you're going to perform your pilgrimage. Okay, how am I supposed to know if this is really how I'm supposed to perform my prayer or even if I'm supposed to perform a prayer? What allows me, what guarantees that this information is as it was communicated? So here, as we're saying, as a human being, I do not have any tools based on my human reason, my human sources of knowledge. I have nothing that allows me to assess the validity of this process or the content of the process. The only exception to this is if the revelation comes to me with a piece of information that contradicts the fundamental laws of logic. This is the only place where my human reason can play a role. If the fundamental laws of logic are impacted, if there is a doubt about them, then basically a human being cannot know anything. And everything stops. There's no more any any reliance on reason. And we have said again and again that our entire faith is based on reason. So if I have a revelation that comes to me so I accepted based on reason everything up to and therefore revelation is necessary and then there's something from revelation that comes and says the law of contradiction is not true so what's the law of contradiction that something cannot be and not be at the same time something cannot be a and not a at the same time right that's the law of contradiction another law of contradiction derived from the law of contradiction is a thing cannot, there is nothing between, let's say, the existence of something and its non-existence. There is no intermediary. You either exist, so existence can be the existence, the being of something, or any of its qualities. Something cannot be and not be at the same time. These are fundamental laws that human be are wired in human beings. If there is something that comes from revelation that contradicts that, this is the only place I can say I have an objection. I want to use my reason to argue with the content of this revelation. Or something that I derived directly from those laws. So in part one, for instance, we started from scratch and we reached, for instance, the proof for the necessary being, the existence of Allah ﷻ, and some of his traits, some of his characteristics. And we said this entity that we're referring to as the necessary being, has to be absolutely simple, it cannot be a composite. It must be eternal, it cannot have an end or a beginning. If something in this revelation comes and contradicts that, then I'm allowed to object. Other than that, when revelation comes and says, this is what happens to you after you die, unless I can bring it back to one of the fundamental laws of logic, I have nothing to say yes or no. Okay, so this is the point that we said the importance of it is, I have no tools, no means to assess the information. Here's one exception, it's if it's contradicting, if it's touching directly on the laws, the fundamental laws of logic, or whatever we derive from them, the, the valid certain proofs that we extract from them, such as, there is only one God, or there's only one necessary being, okay? if If the revelation comes and says, there is more than one God, there is more than one necessary being, we have an issue. But so long as the revelation is not telling me something like that, which it shouldn't, because that's not the domain of revelation. We said the domain of revelation is that which is not accessible to my human knowledge. It either adds to what I can reach, it supplements, or it gives me things that I can never reach. Completely, entirely new. For instance, the details of heaven and hell. I can never reach that on my own. As a human being, I have no access to that realm, in no way. See? Yeah. What about the stuff that, let's say, the Prophet is telling us about something in the past, which
1: for us, it's not logic? Mm-hmm. Like, how do we define, like, well, you know what I mean? Because sometimes, let's say, uh, the, the,
0: the hadith, the hadith, the like, if we hear this, you know, this is unlogical, how can I man Like, mm. is this apply under logic? or No. So, right. something like that would not fall under logic. Okay. Logically, there is no issue with it. Okay. What we have is based on experience, okay. so this is not logic. Limited based on experience, based on our experience, there is an issue with this. Okay. We would not know how to make it work. Who says in, in maybe a week or a month or a year, maybe we're going to know how to make it work. So, there's no Issue with the fundamental logic of what's being presented. And inshallah, we'll talk more about that in miracles, let's say. Okay, or events that may might have happened. So, logic really here means that your mind says this is impossible. Okay. Okay. It's not maybe there's a way for me to make it work. That means it's not a logical impossibility. What we're talking about here is a contradiction to a logical impossibility. This is what we're talking about. Yeah. So, so,
1: maybe not logical, but like moral... Implications when reading the Quran in today's time. Someone would say maybe this is like outdated book.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: With idea like women are your tilth or yameen or you can hit them. Mm-hmm. However soft, yeah, the idea of a woman reading it today would be like, okay, well, this, my husband can hit me. Yeah, no matter how soft, not leaving a bruise, but it's kind of like an older. Way of thinking yeah so is this book then limited to a time yeah so how would we reconcile
0: those ideas or slavery in today's world so for all of this we have to start by giving the right interpretation of the verse mm-hmm. once we gave the right interpretation of the verse this is what the verse is actually saying then we see does it contradict logic or not yeah. or is it becoming something more historical or is it a convention here we're not talking about that. This no. is a completely separate argument. Right. So can, someone cannot come and say it's not logical. They may say based on the customs of nowadays, of this day and age, we have an issue with this. Humanity has evolved to a point where this would be considered absolutely unacceptable. Right. And then we would have a discussion, depending on how we interpreted the verses, depending on how we interpreted the, the narrations, for instance. Mm-hmm. This would not fall under theoretical mm-hmm. logic. Mm -hmm. These are not the laws of contradiction and non-contradiction. So these are more conventions, they're social historical conventions. Mm -hmm. So in those cases, are we talking about universals? Universals as in in 10,000 years humanity will agree with this, as 10,000 years ago they did agree with this, Mm -hmm. or maybe they're not so universal. If they're not universal then we fall into the relative and it becomes a different kind of argumentation, right? So, there was a time when humanity had no problem with slavery. Today they have a problem with it. I don't know in 10,000 years whether they will or not. So, the argument does not fall under something that all of humanity accepts as a universal. So, I cannot mix and uh, put all of these in the same category. Each one of these has to fall in its own category. It's a good point. It's a really good point. But it wouldn't fall under, uh, it contradicts something that I consider a value today. Yes, I that's why I said moral, Yes, something we wouldn't be morally comfortable with. Like. I think humanity in general has, generally, even that is going to be a problematic yeah. statement that I make. Humanity says stealing is wrong, lying is wrong. Right. This would be a moral universal. Okay, I'm like, saying although it's not in all yeah, conditions, okay, de- depending on the system of ethics yeah. you follow. Because one system of ethics is going to say it's okay to lie if you're going to protect yourself and if you don't, you may end up dying, right? Another system of ethics or morals will say this is not allowed, regardless of whether you're going to die or not. Kant would say moral imperative, you're not allowed or human value, the value of a human life is more important than this value. Therefore, you preserve your life and your life. if you can establish when they go into these kinds of arguments and they say this contradicts a moral universal and I agree with you that these are moral universals, yeah. then we're going to have an issue. But if you cannot show me that this is a universal, yeah. then but it's a little bit more open to debate on, you know, it's a historical, it's a, there's a historicity. Okay, so now we're in the relative
1: but like a woman being hit lately, wouldn't you Well, mean,
0: that's the whole topic. I cannot do yeah, that I mean, in 30 seconds. <laughs> this is it. I, I have to go through all the verses verses you, all these these. That's why he wants to move on. <laughs> <laughs> to yeah, but all of these, basically, like each one of these topics would require lectures if we want to address okay. it properly. We can't just, you know, give the verse and say, this is what it means. Okay. We, we're going to give probably seven or eight or ten different opinions. We may or may not choose one at the end, but we want to see, like, is... What's being claimed as the interpretation? Is that really the interpretation? So the answer to the question. So the question is, I as a human being do not have the tools to assess the validity of the revelation. So what guarantees that this revelation is actually the way it was revealed by God and communicated by the prophet? What ensures that the chain of transmission is trustworthy and reliable? So the first answer and the main answer, and out of this one we're gonna derive a secondary version of the answer, is going to be the same answer we gave, the same argument we gave for the necessity of revelation. Why is revelation necessary? It's necessary because human beings do not have a source of knowledge on their own that allows them to reach their perfection for this life and the next. So they need an additional source of information that can only come from their creator and the creator of the world as we went through the conditions, which is revelation. In other words, for a human being to reach their perfection, there's a necessary reliance on revelation. In other words, if a human being does not have access to revelation it defies the purpose of their existence. It's as though Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created human beings without a purpose. If He creates a human being in the manner in which we are created and does not give them access to revelation there is no point to their creation because the point of their creation is to reach their perfection and He's not giving them the tools to reach that perfection therefore it defies the purpose. That was the argument for the necessity of revelation. We're saying it's the same argument. How is it the same argument? What we're doubting now is the validity of that revelation. If that revelation, if prophethood is not guaranteed to be valid, to be reliable, to be trustworthy, then it nullifies prophethood entirely, which nullifies the existence of human beings. The point of the existence of the human being is to reach their perfection. They need knowledge and they need knowledge that they can rely on. If this knowledge is not reliable, if there's an issue in the chain of transmission, it's unreliable, it's untrustworthy and therefore it defies the purpose of the existence of the human being. Okay, so in short, this is the main answer to this question. How do I ensure that this chain of transmission is reliable, trustworthy, and valid? The same argument as we said, for the necessity of the revelation. We repeat here, for the necessity of the validity of the chain of transmission. Okay, now let's go into a little bit more detail. Why is this the way it is? Why does this argument work? In, in a way, so here I'm going to present it in a, as a positive argument and I'm going to, same thing, I'm going to repeat it. So it might sound repetitive, but I'm going to repeat it as a negative argument. Okay, and I'll explain in a second what I mean by that. So if we go back to part one, what did we say in part one? We said Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has certain attributes. One of his attributes is wisdom. Wisdom means that he does not act except with purpose. So for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to have wisdom... When He creates, He creates with purpose. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not give me the knowledge I need to make the choices based on freedom that I need to make to reach my perfection, it defies purpose. It defies the wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is the argument as it's derived from the divine attributes now. Okay, so we established it in one way, now we're establishing it through the divine attributes. That's why we said, once you start understanding how these, you know, the, the, the system, the network of beliefs is built, you see that everything is, is built on what we've said before. That's why it's really a shame for someone to get a part of it and not the rest. They're all connected. Let's turn it into a negative. What would prevent Allah Subhanahu wa Taala? From giving me as a human being what I need to reach my perfection. What's the issue? So if someone tells me, who says that this chain of narration, uh, this chain of revelation, this chain of prophethood, who says that it's valid and trustworthy? So I flip the question into a negative argument. I say, why wouldn't it be? I can give you three reasons why it may not be. Based on divine attributes. Reason number one. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't want to give me the guidance that I need, the revelation and the prophethood that I need to reach my perfection. That's one possibility. The problem is this contradicts divine wisdom and everything we said about it. So that nullifies that part. Okay, another reason we, maybe why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not ensure this validity of the chain of revelation and prophethood is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not know how. He wants to, he has the will, he has purpose, he just doesn't know how to create that chain of transmission in a way that ensures that it's going to be valid and that's going to be trustworthy for me to rely on. And again, that contradicts what we said about divine knowledge. A third reason why someone may say, This is why the chain of transmission is not trustworthy. It's not because Allah didn't want to. Allah wanted to. He had the will. He had the intention of guiding us through revelation, through prophethood. He knows how to do it. He just doesn't have the power to do it. He lacks the ability to do it. So this contradicts what we said about divine power. So I'm not going into detail about repeating everything we've said about each one of the traits, is just to show how the argument can be flipped in a negative, and then going back to the divine attributes, you answer the possibilities. Why wouldn't Allah subhanahu wa taala give me what I need for my guidance? Either He doesn't want to, but that contradicts His wisdom. Either He doesn't know how, then that contradicts His knowledge. Either He can't, and that contradicts His power. Therefore, we have established the necessity of the validity of that chain of revelation. Now, if we go from the Holy Quran, this was based entirely on reason. We look at the Holy Quran, what does it say? So, very quickly, an, an example for each. One example for a contradiction with knowledge. Quran says, and when a sign comes to them, they say, will we not believe until, we will not believe until we are given the like of what was given to Allah's messengers. Allah knows best where to place His message. a'lam So this includes all the dimensions, all the aspects of knowledge. Allah knows best who to choose for prophethood. Allah knows how to communicate that to them. Allah knows how to transmit that message through that chain entirely to them. In the time and the space and in the manner in which is most suitable to them. Okay, so all of this has to do with the divine knowledge Allahu a'lam, If we look at it from power Alimul Ghaib, this is in Surah Al Jinn, knower of the unseen, he does not disclose his unseen This Alimul Ghaib, his unseen to anyone Except to a messenger he has approved and then he dispatches before him. So before that messenger and behind him guarding watchers that he may know what they have communicated that he may know that they have communicated the messages of the Lord. <inaudible> Here it's the power. Allah. There are, there are objections that were made that the jinn and the shayateen can maybe intervene or interfere in the way in which the message is being communicated all the way to the Holy Prophet and the Quran responds to that. And it says, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when He gives that message to His messengers, He also protects them from in front of them and behind them from basically every aspect, from every angle, from every dimension. Which tells us what? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is taking it on Himself personally to make sure that that message is communicated in the right way to human beings. So He's ensuring the safety of the message and the person carrying that message. By choosing people that he approves of and guarding them and protecting them. Okay? That's the second verse. This has to do with the power. And the last one, the wisdom, so that he who perishes may perish by a manifest proof. The the verse starts with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saying that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not going to leave this group of people who call themselves the believers. He's not just going to let them be and call themselves believers and things stop there. There has to be some testing, there has to be some filtering so that we know who's really a believer and who's not, because the community of the believers at that time was filled with hypocrites, with the munafiqeen. So the Quran says, and we're gonna do tests, and those who remain steadfast are the believers. And the others, well, you see who is shaken up, and who has doubts, and who says, let's stop, this is not working, let's give up, let's, let's not follow this man who says he's talking to God, these plans are not working, or whatever, okay? So, and then the verse continues until it says, so that he who perishes liyehlaka man halaka whoever dies or whoever leaves religion or whoever under this general heading of perishing so that he who perishes might perish by a manifest proof and he who lives may live by a manifest proof and we've already talked about this allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not going to hold people accountable without providing to them a proof first And this is in line with wisdom. It would not be compatible with divine wisdom to hold people accountable, make them responsible for their belief, but not give them the proofs that they need to see things very manifestly, very clearly between right and wrong, between what they're supposed to believe and what they're not supposed to believe. So the conclusion from all of this that we have established is that this chain of narration must be, must be, out of necessity, it must be valid, it must be authentic, it must be reliable. This is the general proof. And of course, this is going to include all the intermediaries in that chain. So as we said, there's just two intermediaries. There's Allah, SWT, we don't talk about that. We already established in part one, truthfulness, الصدق, as one, we said Allah, SWT, is he mutakallim, does he have speech as one of his attributes? Yes. In the sense that he communicates human, to human beings. We said, does he have sidq Yes, and the Quran says, from Allah." So Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala, is truthful. And that's why we, when we talked about that, we said this is going to allow us to have a revelation and to have a religion. So we don't talk about God. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then we move to the angels and the prophets. So now we're going to look at the angels and the prophets. Okay, so we established the chain. We established the general proof. Now we're going to look at the two parts, the two ingredients of that chain. And as we said, of course, this implies that or includes the validity of that chain through voluntary action and intent or involuntary. So it not only shows that the prophets and the angels are going to have to secure that message voluntarily, it also shows that they must secure it involuntarily too. There cannot be mistakes unintentional mistakes, accidents on the way that we're not, even that is not possible, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would not allow that, and from a logical perspective, or based on wisdom, it would defy the purpose. If Allah allowed that to happen, it defies the purpose of the revelation. And if there's no revelation, there's nothing. Okay? Yeah. I'm just
1: curious with like the uh, sin who questioned the Asma of the Prophet, even when he's a prophet, he's done things that someone might consider, you know, not valuable things, like when he received revelation, he was considering the mountain and all that. So how would they would, would they answer this? How would they answer
0: the the of the Quran? Yeah, so up to here, this is generally speaking, I'm not gonna go into too much detail, we can actually go to the next one. Um when we're going to talk about this in one slide, we're going to do one slide and we're going to come back to this about the, the topic of the scope of the infallibility. Up to here, I'm going to say generally speaking, generally speaking, the crushing majority of Muslims, there are claims that there are minority groups in the history of Islam who have or who may today have rejected this argument and saying that Prophets can and do sin and do make mistakes and angels as well and they establish proofs for that and we're gonna answer those in the oh, next lessons okay. Okay. but generally speaking all Muslims agree so the crushing majority of Muslims agree on what have we established until now well we've established that is that is that the chain of revelation is trustworthy but we haven't talked about the rest So we haven't talked about the prophet outside of the time he's communicating revelation. Mm. Here is where there's going to be a difference between the schools of thought. So some of them are going to say he's always infallible, whether he is repeating the revelation or doing something else. And someone else, another group may say, no, he's only infallible when he's communicating the revelation from God. The rest of his life, he's not infallible. You
1: can say when he's doing tablir and tahrim, and they'll say no, he was the one who turned away from the blind. So this is this is even in a position of doing dawah, he's committing an act that maybe you and I wouldn't commit, mm-hmm. turning away from a blind person.
0: And so we're so going to so talk how about they, that? how they reconcile. Yeah, that? so we're going to talk about that. But basically, their argument is they try to keep it to the minimum. Required, which is what so we say. So only who is receiving Qur'an, makes sense So the yeah. whole spectrum exists. We have okay. scholars and schools okay. of thought who say, and we're going to go through some of them. Godless so
1: Allah's chain is God, the angels, and the prophet, when he receives it, he doesn't make a mistake here.
0: here he isn't following. Yeah, But his tabliq or dawah could make a mistake, possibly. Yes, Okay. because this falls under his normal actions. Okay. Okay. But even that is, depending on which fault the scholar is okay. saying, Okay? And we're going to talk more about that because the same thing applies to angels. Okay, so everything that we said until now was what? We established the validity of the proof for the chain of revelation on both parts. The angels and the prophets. But we established it at a high level. And we didn't go into the details. Inshallah, some of the details are going to come. Maybe a little bit towards the end of this lesson and the next lesson and the one after that. So, based on what we presented, this is all the rational proof. So, let's see what the Quran says. The Quran, actually, the Holy Quran insists on the validity of that chain. It wants to leave absolutely no doubt in anyone's mind that while the transmission of that message is taking place through intermediaries, those intermediaries are entirely 100% reliable. And the words that it uses are very dramatic, very, very, very serious. It's a very grave tone when the Holy Qur'an talks about this topic. It wants to leave no doubt in anyone's mind that this is a secure chain. And so we'll go through, there's a lot of verses that we can mention here, but here's a, a few of them, just a sample. So this is indeed a revelation sent down from the... Sorry, there's a mistake here. Sent down from the Lord of the Worlds, brought down by the trustworthy sir, spirit. So, نَزَلَ بِهُ الْرُوحُ الْأَمِينُ عَلَىٰ قَلْبِكِ من سُرَةِ But here, notice the beginning. The beginning of the verse is, this is indeed a revelation sent down from the Lord of the Worlds. You see the first part of the the chain, there is, it's, he's, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is securing that part. Saying, this part of the message comes from me. I'm the one sending it. It's coming from the Lord of the worlds. okay. And then it adds, the next verse adds, brought down by the trustworthy spirits. So this is Jibra'il Okay, so this is the second part. Where does it go? Where does that message go? Upon your heart. Okay, so all what's left is if we establish the infallibility of the Holy Prophet as a person, that's it, the change is secure. Okay, upon your heart that you may be one of the warners. Okay, so this is one sample, one verse. So you see the whole chain is secured. Another one, it is indeed the speech of a noble messenger, of might and eminence with the Lord of the Throne. This is Jibrail The Holy Quran, when it describes him, it gives these amazing, splendid characteristics to Jibrail and the It is indeed the speech of a noble messenger of might and eminence. In other words, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made Jibra'il powerful and eminent. Before him, to him, he has made him like that in that world, the world of the unseen and the world of the angels. This is the status of Jibra'il and he's the one who's carrying the message. Okay? It is indeed the speech of a noble messenger of might and of eminence, with the Lord of the Throne, one who is obeyed, Jabalir one who is obeyed and trustworthy as well. Okay, so this is the Surah taqweer Beginning of Surah Al-Najm, by the star when it falls. So this is Allah SWT swearing by the star, by the star when it falls. Your companion has neither gone astray or been misled nor does he speak out of his own desire. It is nothing but a revelation revealed, taught him by the one of mighty power, which is Jibra'il Again, here you see the entire chain, okay? And you see the role that the Holy Prophet plays. The Quran says there is nothing of him in that message that he's communicating. There is no desire in there, okay? Next next, uh, sample. So this is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. again. That's why I said, look at the intensity, look at the seriousness of the tone of these verses when it talks about revelation and how trustworthy it must be. And this gives us on the other side, the corollary of that, how, uh, you know, let, let's say wrongly seen, badly seen, how serious it would be for someone to doubt the validity of revelation. This is basically what it tells us. I swear what you, by what you see and by what you do not see. It is surely the speech of a noble messenger, gradually sent down from the Lord of the worlds, and had he fabricated any saying in our name, we would have surely seized him by the right hand, or by the right, then we would have cut off the artery of his heart. Okay, so this is again in Surah Al-Haqqa, towards the end, the Holy Quran basically says, if the Holy Prophet would ever say a word from himself on our behalf, claim that this is a, a make up a fabrication basically. Fabricate something and say, this is from God. When it is not, we would basically kill him on the spot. So that this does not reach human beings. This is what it means when we would take him by the hand, the whole Quran says by the right. Because in in Arabic, it's metaphorically, your, your power and your might is your right, okay? So we would basically take away all of his power and we would kill him on the spot so that he doesn't fabricate a word and claim that it's from us so what more do we need to ensure that reliance on that chain the holy quran continues and this is something that has been communicated again and again and i listed some of the prophets i didn't want to list all the ver- all, all the, the verses that go there that basically repeat the same the same wording this rasulun amin nasihun amin In all the cases, the holy prophets are always repeating, all of them, that I am a trustworthy prophet, a trustworthy advisor to you. I just put one of them from Prophet Hud, he says, rather, I am a messenger from the Lord of the worlds. I communicate to you the messages of my Lord, and I am a trustworthy and well-wisher advisor to you. Okay, when they keep attacking him with different arguments. Okay, and all the Prophets. So I listed some of them where there are explicit verses of the Quran when they repeat this. We have them from Prophet Nuh Hud, Salih, Luke, Shu'ayb, and Musa السلام, in Surah Al-Dukhan, Musa And the others are Surah al shuara and Surah Al-An'am. Okay, so now we've established everything we've said, both rationally and through Scripture, through the Holy Quran. Second part of the lesson is the scope of infallibility. To come back to the uh, question the intervention that was uh, just said what we've established until now is that the chain of the revelation while the revelation is taking place is trustworthy and reliable and that chain is made up of ingredients of elements and parts one of them is the angels and the other one is the prophets but this opens the door to exploring those two ingredients a little bit more what about the scenario, the situation where Revelation is not currently taking place. So let's start with the angels and this is a very big topic, but very, very quickly. We know that there are different types of angels. The Holy Quran says that the angels are the ones that basically administer and manage the universe. Everything that exists is done through the angels. So we have angels that perform all sorts of functions, one of them being the revelation, communicating the revelation. So, first question, what about those angels who do communicate the revelation? What about the rest of the time when they're not communicating the revelation? Are they also infallible or are they only safeguarded and guaranteed, the reliance is only guaranteed, the reliability is only guaranteed while they communicate the revelation? And outside of that, there might be sinning and mistakes, voluntary and involuntary. That's one. Question two, what about the other angels? The ones that have nothing to do with revelation, the one who administer the rest of the universe. Are they also infallible? Are they also guaranteed, reliable entirely, trustworthy entirely, or not? That's one group. Two questions. Second group of two questions. So we established that the prophets, when they are communicating the message of Allah SWT, they must be infallible, otherwise it would defy the purpose. Okay, so what about those prophets when they are not communicating the message of Allah SWT? in the rest of their affairs, as they live their lives, are they infallible or not? Because the proof we presented is only for that part, if we want to be really strict. About it. Mm-hmm although the real answer is exactly what you said, the objection that you said. So that's one question. What about the prophets outside of the time they're revealing? And two, what about this notion of infallibility? Does it extend to people outside of those prophets mm-hmm. who are communicating the revelation? What about people like Maryam, people like Fatima, <laughs> Zahra, people like the i am going what do we do with those? They're not necessarily communicating a revelation to humanity. So what do we do about their infallibility? Okay, so these became, become a huge topic, all of these together. All of it falling under the heading of infallibility. So the answer is very quickly. Angels, the author right away, he finishes this with uh, half a paragraph. In order to really answer the question about the angels it would require a very in-depth advanced study about their nature and even that I would add for myself even that may end up being inconclusive if we're only relying on reason okay philosophy has spent a lot of time trying to study angels but it's not an entirely just philosophical discussion there's a lot of scripture about the angels and their nature and how they are and what they are and you know, whether they have desires or not, they have intellects or not, and all of that, okay? So he says, I'm going to skip all of that, and I'm going to give you a quick answer from the Holy Quran. As for the validity of the Holy Quran, it will be established later. So basically, take my word for it for now. We are going to come back. We know that we haven't established the Holy Quran as a valid source, a miraculous source of knowledge and information yet. We're going to come back to that. So for the time being, we're not going to go into the rational discussion about the angels, the philosophical discussion about the nature of the angelic being. But we're going to give the answer about the angels from two verses of the Holy Qur'an. There are others, and in fact, some of the verses that we just said could go there, okay? But we're going to look at two verses of the Holy Qur'an that may answer that first question for us, those two questions about the angels. First one. So towards the end of the verse, it says, "Nay, they are honored servants." So the Holy Quran is talking about the angels, because the Arabs, those pagans, used to believe that the angels are the daughters of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, and they ascribed all sorts of things to them. They do this and they don't do that. and This is how they came into being, and this is what they mean to Allah. So the Holy Quran, after it says what they what they believe, all these false claims, it comes back and and, and concludes with, "Nay, they are honored servants." So that's already. A very strong indication. The Holy Qur'an does not consider anyone just a servant. To be a servant means you're really truly serving Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it says, They are honored. They are noble. Okay. They do not precede him. So they do not say or do anything before. They do not precede him in speech. And they act by his command. Okay. So this establishes their infallibility. One verse. Second verse they do not disobey Allah in what he commands them but do as they are commanded okay so these are clear verses that said between us it's also arguable because we have to see which angels the holy quran is referring to in these verses and are is it talking about all angels or specific angels the ones that are being addressed you know as a response to the claims of the Arabs of, the, of that time, or all of them. So that becomes a whole discussion, so we park it for now. And inshallah, we'll have an opportunity. This is a very interesting topic. In fact, we even have some verses, some narrations, and maybe even a couple of verses in the Quran with Harut and Marut, Surah Al-Baqarah. And we have some narrations about uh, a few of the angels in Nabi Futrus, or sul or Dur-Dail. These are angels who have been mentioned in some of our narrations where it may be understood that they sinned. So if we keep that in mind, and we add the story of the angels that some people interpret as having objected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when he wanted to create Adam alayhi salam, that becomes a whole discussion on its own. So here we gave the concluding quick answer to it, and then the details inshallah deserve a good, either one good lecture, so park that, or, or a series of lectures, depending on how much detail we want to get into. Okay, so that's for the angels. Now, the second one, The second two questions we said about the prophets. So we said one question has to do with the prophets themselves while they are not communicating the revelation. And the second question is people who fall generally under that category of infallibles in our world, we think at least, and at the same time they are not prophets per se. So they're not communicating that revelation from Allah. So what do we do with them? So about the second these others... The author tells us, I'm going to part that topic until we reach the topic of imamah. And I'm going to discuss it in detail over there. We're going to talk about the nature of the imamah and what kind of infallibility they have. And that will be an extended, uh, you know, in-depth, more in-depth look at this topic of people who have infallibility outside of the role, the strict role of prophethood. Okay, so what's left? What's left is the third category, which is the prophets. So we've already established their infallibility while they're revealing. Now we're going to talk about their infallibility beyond that. So the infallibility of the prophets. So here the author, first of all, says, I'm going to start relying here to get into this topic. I'm going to have to start relying on scriptural evidence. And we haven't established the validity of the scriptural relevance the narrations of the Holy Qur'an yet, so this is to come, as we said right before for the previous proof as well, okay? So that's one. Second thing is, as we just mentioned, there is a huge disagreement among the scholars of Islam about this topic of infallibility. Who has infallibility and what does it mean? So some, we have groups of scholars who say, (coughs) infallibility is strictly limited to major sins. So minor sins are not part of the infallibility that is secured by Allah because they do not harm the message in general. So if a prophet were to perform, were to commit a minor sin, that's okay. So they reinterpret some of the claims against the prophets as being minor sins and to them that's okay. That's one group. There are groups of scholars, some of them who believe that the prophets are only infallible the moment they become a prophet. So any at any time before that, between their birth and becoming a prophet, they may have sinned. Mm-hmm. And that's okay to them. Others say the prophets only become infallible when they reach what the Holy Quran always refers to as بَلَغَ Okay, which often means he reaches the full maturity, which is at 40. Okay, again and again. So we have it with Musa A.S., and other prophets, okay? Others say when he reaches the age of maturity, which is when they become 16 or around there, okay? And others, us, the Shia, we believe from the moment of birth. And we'll explain that in detail, inshallah, in the next lesson, okay? Because this opens the door to some questions. So that's two. So we believe, first of all, there are groups who believe it's only for major sins. Some say it includes all of them. We believe no sins at all. No sins for any of the infallibles. Not minor, not major. Some believe that there's a point in time when the infallibility starts. We believe that it's from the moment of birth. And even there's previous worlds, even those previous worlds. Okay. Some of them believe that it's before or after revelation. We believe that it's at all times. Some believe that it's only in revelation, as we said. So they are infallible when they are Performing because that's I didn't mention that. Some of them believe it's only when they're repeating the words that are the scripture. Others say when they are performing any tasks related to the revelation. But if I, if he's drinking water or eating food in his own house and no one sees, well, this is not the you know, it has absolutely no relevance on on the validity of the message. I'll take it one step beyond for you. If there's no one looking, a prophet may say then in that case, there's almost no point of sin now. Well, all in of this way. is based on the idea that infallibility is only necessary to communicate the message. Yeah. So if it's not harming the communication of the message, then what's the issue? They may sin when they're all alone. Or they may sin so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala proves, he forces them to sin in another, way, in another way, to prove that they are only human. That's an argument in a lot of the Kalam books, by the Kalam scholars. Okay, so all of these we think are usually problematic, and we will talk more about them in the next lesson too. And all of this comes down to this topic of understanding the nature of infallibility. What is it? What is this infallibility we're talking about? Okay, so point number one is we do not mean by infallibility not sinning. That's not what we mean. Okay, some people may think that infallible means he does he has not committed a sin It's not that This is a very low standard one and two and it doesn't do the purpose. There's too many objections to it I'll, I'll say a quick story here. I, we don't have a lot of time They say uh, in the time of al-Hakim, uh, May God have mercy on his soul. They say a man came to him and He wanted to repent And the reason is uh, he had played a musical instrument his whole life. It's some sort of flute. And he told the Marja, I would like to know what I need to do to have a full repentance from having lived a life in this kind of way, this lifestyle and this life. And they say, surprising surprising to everybody sitting there in the mosque, Sayyid al-Hakim told him, uh, that's okay. I would like for you to play one last time for me. The man objected and said, That's impossible. that this is haram. What are you saying? And we're in the mosque. He's like, no, please go get your instrument and play for me. I know what's haram and what's halal. Play for me one last time. And he insisted on it. And at the end, the man said, Well, to be honest, actually I can't play right now because I have to hold the instrument with my teeth and my teeth have all fallen now. So Sayyid Hakim told him, then you are not repenting. You're no longer capable of performing the sin. You can't hold the instrument in your mouth. You should have come to me when you could still perform the sin and this is when you repent. It's okay for you to repent now, but be sure that this is a real repentance. But what you're describing right now is not a real repentance. Okay, so why are we saying this story? I think there's a part of it that's humor and that's good but it's more if we go back to the prophets for instance and this notion of infallibility it's not that you're not committing the sin there's a lot of being not being said here can you commit the sin or not so infallibility cannot just be I'm not committing this it has to be an internal faculty an internal trait it's like a psycho spiritual trait that makes me disciplined enough not to sin when I can. And even more than that, because this is again a lower standard, not to sin in the most extreme of circumstances. Because I'm the role model that everybody's looking at. So if I sinned in that situation, then anyone can sin. That opens the door to everyone. This is where I have to show the value as it is, the absolutes. Maybe others, they have a lot more leniency. For me to be infallible as someone who Allah has appointed as an infallible, openly saying this is one of my representatives. This is the kind of infallibility we're talking about. This is an internal trait, so it's not from the outside. It's not imposed on the person. It's an internal trait that makes the person have the kind of discipline, the kind of will to avoid the sin when they can sin and even when they are compelled to sin. Okay? So this is what we mean by infallibility. This is the infallibility we're talking about in Ilm al The, So I'm not going to spend more time explaining this. There's a lot that can be said, inshallah. I'm I'm, I'm deferring to the next lesson where there's a little notion there where he talks about the secret of infallibility, which is basically trying to explain what do we really mean by this nature of infallibility. So we'll talk about that. But generally speaking, where does this trait come from? This discipline, where does it come from? So here he says, first of all, there's a continuous awareness of the person himself about themselves. Two, about their attachment and presence before Allah ﷻ. So there's a, an awareness. It's combined with a knowledge. There's an awareness and a knowledge about the ugliness of that sin that makes them not even think of Going towards it. They, it doesn't even cross their mind to go there. And inshallah we'll talk about that and give examples to see how we have we have that. We just may not have it in the same way or in the same areas as they do. But there are things that would not even cross our minds to do. And some people do them. So you say, well, why why doesn't it even cross my mind to do that? So you have a type of ism, you have an infallibility here but your standard and mine and theirs is different, okay? So we'll talk about that inshallah. So there is a, a continuous awareness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and of the sin, the reality of the sin, and knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and themselves and the sin. And then here's where the author adds, and he doesn't spend a lot of time on this, but this opens the door to a huge topic, which is there's a divine grace here. There's a divine care that's added. No human being can reach this status without the divine care. Why? Because what I control is what I control. And that's why what I'm responsible for before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are my voluntary actions. But what I'm claiming for these people is beyond that. I'm claiming that they do not forget. And I'm claiming that they're never confused and they do not get mixed up. And they do not make mistakes unintentionally. So this is a divine preservation. There's a divine intervention here for them. In my case, I may be one of those people who never commits a sin. And I may be, practically speaking, in that definition of just not committing a sin, I may be a masum. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not going to appoint me to the people and say, this is one of my representatives, because I may still get mixed up. Based on the knowledge I have, this is the conclusion I reach. And what do you know? It's completely wrong. But based on the knowledge I had, have, I haven't committed a sin. There's no problem in what I'm saying, except that it doesn't match the truth. And that happens, we're human beings. I commit, I make a mistake unintentionally. I didn't know that this is a mistake. There's no sin there. You're a ma'soom in this sense, but you're not ma'soom in the sense we're talking about here, which is divinely appointed, assigned, to humanity as a masul. Here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, there's a stamp of approval from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that this person, their will is my will, their act is my act. They represent me on earth. So when we look at it in that manner, then we understand why that person cannot be someone who lacks manners, because there's someone who's blind or poor, sitting beside them, they may look over. And we say, that's absolute nonsense. It cannot work. This is not the infallibility we're talking about. Okay? The issues we have is if we're saying Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala interferes or intervenes for these people by adding a divine care, then is this still compatible with their freedom? Do they still get a merit, any merit, for their good actions or not? So inshallah, we'll talk about that. That's one. And the second one is, well, does it have practical implications for us? Because there was a good question a couple of lessons ago about how can we take these people who are infallibles, presented to us by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as infallibles, how can they be role models for us when they are infallible? They are at a level of infallibility that we will never reach. How can that person still be a role model for me when I'm being asked to use them as a role model? So is there a contradiction there or how do we make that work? So this is more the practical implications and maybe a little bit of with that. So inshallah, we'll address that. The second point he talks about, so that was more about the nature of infallibility, which will come inshallah. The second point is, when we say that a prophet is an infallible, we always mean that they are limited by the system of legal, the legal system or the code of laws that applies to them. So something that may look like it's, incompatible with my system of law today because I'm a Muslim following the Sharia of the Holy Prophet, it may look like it was not compatible with their Asma when it was because in their system of law in their Sharia, this was not a haram. It was not a sin. Okay, so there's something that we have to look at which is what applies to one prophet that may not apply to another. If for one prophet it was legitimate to marry sisters and then the next Code of law says that uh, that becomes illicit. We cannot say that this contradicts infallibility. Okay, that's an example. And then the last point is, and again, as I said, this is going to be the transition. So keep these points in mind as we talk about them. The third one is the in Arabic, linguistically, the term of maqsia. Is broader than what we use in fiqh or what we use as a term in, in religion. An Arabic ma'siyah could be anything, any type of mistake, any lack, any gap in behavior and conduct and thinking and could become a ma'siyah. So if the Quran says wa it does not necessarily mean that he sinned or that he disobeyed Allah in the manner meaning it contradicts his infallibility. Okay, so this is just a note about linguistically the term masia in Arabic and the term ma'asiyah in the terminology of the Holy Quran and our fiqh, they do not match. It's a lot broader in linguistically in Arabic. So a lot of things that will fall under ma'asiyah will not contradict necessarily the infallibility of a prophet. So if we keep all of this in mind, inshallah, in the next lesson and the lesson after that, we drill down into specifically the nature of the infallibility, what it means, and then we look at specific cases of some of our prophets. Uh, may God's peace and blessings be upon them.